How are you? <clears throat> okay, a couple goods, a couple... Okay, all right, well, I know, you lost an hour, I get it. Revelation chapter 7, if you want to turn there, please. If you need a Bible, which we would encourage you to follow along. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm working on it. If you, I know, working on it. So, again, if you'd like to get a Bible, they're in the chairs in front of you. Before we dismiss the kids, let me say this to you. I wanted to read this. We had read this verse, I think, on the 8th of January. And it's just really stood out to me over last year, the end of last year and this year. It says, Hear, O Israel. And I want you to hear this as parents. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Right? We know that as the Shema. And these words that I commanded you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your head. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We've been leaning into that. How do we walk with parents as they raise children in the faith? And so one of the things we've done is we've encouraged you to say, Hey, parents, keep your kids in here with us, and I'll tell you why. They learn a lot from being around you, watching you worship, learning how you worship. Uh, Pastor John started putting these together. If your kids are in here and they want something to do to help follow along with the message, something far more fun than I am, there's this. I can admit it. And then if you want to, our cl- we have classrooms for our kids too. And you can, are they following somebody out today? Straight back out. If your kids want to go to class, they can. They want to hang out here. We'd encourage that too. So at that time, you can go kids. Either way, as we focus on how to teach our kids, we remember that it is our parents, our families, and our family of families. We own that value to raise our kids and to talk about our faith while we go about doing the life that God has given us. Given us excuse me. So Revelation 7 is we're going to start today. And I want to just kind of remind us where we left off last week. We left off at the end of Revelation 6 with the sixth seal being open and destruction hitting the earth, right? Well, now we're going to look at the next chapter and even the seventh seal as it opens up chapter 8. And what we're going to see is the story goes backwards in time. And so we've said this over and over. Revelation isn't a linear story. It's not a story that plays out in time, like this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. And a lot, of, a lot of people like to try and timeline it. That's kind of a modern and a very Western approach to reading. That is not a very Eastern or Jewish or 2,000 years ago approach. And so when it was written, it was not intended to play out a, a, a timeline. But rather, it's very cyclical. And we talked about the upper story and lower story. There's what's going on in heaven with God and, and, and Jesus, what's going on, and then what's going on with the church on earth, and it circles back up, and we see God in heaven doing what God is doing. We see the church on earth enduring tribulation and struggle and pain, and God redeeming them and calling them to remain that they might be a witness in the world that is hurting. And so this is not a linear story. It's going to go backwards today. And so three things I wanted to tell you. If you're a note taker, you've been paying attention to what we're doing. And if you're new, 
Maybe you've missed these. If you're our guest today, we're glad you're here. There's three things that it not being a linear story, why that matters. And so first, since the story isn't over, we're in chapter 7, it teaches us that Revelation isn't linear, it's cyclical, right? It circles back and goes back, so don't look at this as a timeline. There's another thing we've talked about, that the characters that we've seen, when I say characters, remember that Revelation is an apocalyptic genre. It's a book written in a particular genre that is heavily image-driven, right? A common genre 2,000 years ago, actually 1,900 years ago for this book. It was written at the end of the first century. And in that, in other words, we're seeing characters that represent real things, but they're heavily image-driven. And so we understand that the characters are image-driven. They're not intended to be taken super literally. Here's, I'll give you a good example, right? And this is important. We'll talk about this more today. We understand that Jesus is identified as the lamb looking as if he had been slain, right? Well, we don't think Jesus actually looks like a lamb right now, right? We don't think that Jesus is up there white and woolly. Wool? Is that right? Furry. I was going to say furry. That was going to be really dumb. So, see how I caught myself and then told on myself, but whatever, right? So we don't think that when we look up at Jesus, he's going to look like that. We... Whatever Jesus looks like, he looks like. But we're given this image so that we understand that Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist proclaimed him, looking as if he had been slain, in other words, who had died but is alive. So it's really important. The images that we're given are supposed to teach us something, not supposed to be the literal thing, right? That they're supposed to teach us something and that the Bible has told us already what those things are. So when it says the lion of the tribe of Judah, we know what that means. When it says the lamb, we know what that means. When it says these things, it's all images that have come out of Scripture already. And so it gives us meaning. Number three, each week we see that the churches on earth enduring this great tribulation that they're under so that the gospel witness remains until the very end. It's not a promise that the church is going to be removed when things get hard, but rather that the church is the plan when things get very hard, right? That when life gets challenging, in whatever way that means, all, all the way up to, could be persecution and death, when, when that is true of the church, the church remains in that to continually point forward to Jesus. And we've seen that over and over again in the text. So all that to get us to this place. Today, here's a main idea for you. Grace and judgment. Revelation focuses on grace and salvation as much as destruction and judgment. The gospel requires a full view of both. Without judgment, what are we saved from? Right? If there was no judgment, salvation would be meaningless. It's like this. If there was never going to be a flood that destroyed the earth, then Noah built a boat in vain, right? But because judgment was coming, the ark became the salvation for Noah, if you will. So without judgment, salvation is meaningless. Salvation must have a, we're saving you from something in order for it to be meaningful. Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to back up just to the end of what we read last week. Then the kings on the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful 
And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, meaning God, and from the wrath of the Lamb, meaning Jesus. Verse 17. For the great day of their wrath, meaning God's and Jesus' wrath, has come. And it asks this question, who can stand? So the day of their great wrath. So God and Jesus, they are pouring out wrath. And they ask this question, who can stand? Who can stand under this destruction and judgment? And so what's going to happen is Revelation 7 is going to answer that question. Who can stand? See, it's not just this kind of declarative kind of thing that we read, and as they say that, it has no meaning. When they ask this question, who can stand under this wrath, it's to set up the next thing. So chapter 7 will come and answer that. So just a little bit as we back up, the wrath and destruction. Remember, we've seen the prayers of the martyrs lifted up to God, saying, How long, O Lord? So those who have been martyred in the faith are crying out, God, how long until the end? Or how long until you judge the earth? See, when we think of judgment, sometimes we just think of of a penalty being poured out. Or a destruction of, or a remaking of. But see, the dead saints, the dead Christians who have given their lives for their faith, are like, how long until you judge evil that took our lives, that persecuted our churches? How long, O Lord? And the Lord answers this question, not until all who ordain to salvation come. Right? How long will you allow evil on earth to oppress your church? And God's answer is this, as long as it takes for me to gather up all of my people, to gather all my folks and and get them all, Then it says, then after that, destruction will cover the earth. And this last passage, rich and poor, kings and slaves, all stand in fear of the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of Jesus. So who can stand is how we open up this conversation in chapter 7. Chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And so notice again, what was destroyed at the end of chapter 6 is now back, right? We're backing up in time to before that destruction took place. In order to answer the question, how long, or excuse me, who can stand underneath this judgment? Who, who can withstand this? In order to deal with that, we back up from before the destruction, before the world was destroyed, before, well, there was still a sea and land and trees, well, there was still life. And so it says that the four angels stand at the four corners of the earth, right? Obviously, an image, the earth doesn't have corners, it's round, right? This is not a conspiracy theory. The earth is flat, I promise. Somewhere, somehow, Scott Hines. Yes, so anyhow, all right, for those of you who know. All right, so this is a, they're withholding destruction. They're withholding these winds, these terrible winds that will come and wipe everything off the planet. So they're holding this back, this destruction. 
Verse 1 again. We'll just restart there. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, this is not a literal seal. Right? I want to say that, again, imagery. And this isn't even new imagery. This is Old Testament imagery, as we've been saying over and over and over again. I'll just read you a quick passage from there in a minute. But what is being said is, before you destroy the earth, you can't destroy the earth until all who are gods, all who are, going, or who are in Christ, all of them have been sealed. And it says sealed on their foreheads. And I just want you to hear this, that this is an image. Right? And it's drawn out of Ezekiel. No one is intended to be stamped on their foreheads. And that's probably not super important in this passage. But when we get to the mark of the beast later, people get really weird about stuff and hands and foreheads later. Same language doesn't have to be literal. You with me? Okay. So seals, like the seals on the scroll, there are seven seals on the scroll that represents redemptive history. Another, the story of the gospel playing out from beginning to end, redemptive history. And these seals are like markers on this redemptive history story. And then the seals on people are noting which people are sealed by redemption. In other words, which people are found in Christ. Right? Until those people are sealed, and you would seal something, making it yours. Right? You cannot destroy the earth until all of those are sealed. And it's another way of saying all who are Christ must come to faith. Right? All those God has chosen, has ordained, must come to faith. And so until then, you can't take the earth and destroy it. Right? I just want you to hear this again. There's nothing new in Revelation. One of the commentators said that early in the book. We've been saying that over and over again. The imagery, the language, the teaching, if there's nothing new. It's put together in a new way. That's okay. But the images all exist. This is out of Ezekiel. I'm just going to read this to you. It's too long to put on the screen, so I just want you to hear it. Now the glory of the Lord God of Israel had gone up from a cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, that's Ezekiel the prophet, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed on. He says this, I want you to mark the people that have this, this holy discontent with the sin of God's people. Are you with me? Uh, those people that just can't, can't sit idly by and see God's people not follow God, who sigh and just struggle and wrestle. He says, I want you, now back up, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, as Eagle says, pass through the city after him and strike your eyes shall not spare and, your, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one. On whom is the mark? 
and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders before the house. This is what God tells Ezekiel in the time where the people of God are so far away from God. But that there are a few who can't, who can't just take what is normal and accept it, but say, no, that, that God has called us to so much more. And so they are unhappy, discontent with the way things are. They want to see holiness pervade God's people, but God's people are far away. And God says, I'm going to destroy all, young and old, male and female, rich and poor, doesn't matter. But I'm going to steal the people that are mine, that are truly mine, who obey me, who follow me. I'm going to keep them. And once they have been sealed, destroy all the rest. Start in the sanctuary. Start here and work your way out. And it says, began with the elders. And then destruction hit. It's the same thing as we're reading in Revelation. So we're answering the question, who can stand under the wrath? The wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, this is important. We're going to read this a couple times. So there's a couple different ways to understand this 144,000. Some see this as a picture of uh, national Israel, Jewish Israel, who will come to faith later. Uh, some see this as the church. I would go with the latter interpretation. This is the church. And I'll give you a couple reasons why. And one thing about this, we can disagree on who the 144,000 are. And it doesn't really change much. Right? It doesn't really matter exactly who they are in order to get the meaning of the passage. But I'll tell you why I say this is the church or the true church would be a better way of saying it. But I want you to hear this language. Right? It's important to understand what is said. John heard the number 144,000. And then what will happen in a few verses, John will see something different. Now let me tie that into something we already know. In fact, the image that we chose for Revelation is the lion and the lamb. So you've got a, a lion's head and a ram's head, right? And what you've got is this image that Jesus is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Now, here's why this is important today. See, when John is told, look, come up here, see what's going on in heaven, he's invited from the lower story where the, the church is suffering under great trial, tribulation, even persecution and death. And he's invited up to the upper story where God is at the same time as this is taking place and looking at what God is doing even when we can't see it. And we get to this place where he sees God on the throne and the heavenly beings around him worshiping God. And then the, the whole story zooms in on this scroll representing redemptive history, right? In God's hand. And, and then the scroll has seven seals. And then it says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to see redemption on earth? Who is, who is worthy to accomplish the redemption of sinful humanity? And it says, no one was worthy 
And John hears this, and he knows what it means, and he cracks. In that moment, he begins to weep because no one is worthy to save humanity, to save the church suffering on earth, to save him from his own sin. And he weeps. And he says, fear not. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, can open the seals. And he says, he heard the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He heard that Jesus called those two things is there. And then he looked and he saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the midst of the throne. So what did John hear? He heard a lion. That Jesus is a lion. What did he see? He saw a lamb. Both give us images of who Jesus is. He's the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 49, eons ago, that God made through the man Israel, Jacob, over his son Judah, that from his line would come the Savior, the Messiah. And later... Also, King David gets that same promise, the root of David, right? That this same thing, that this is who he hears Jesus is, the lion. But then he looks and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Another image teaching us about how Jesus accomplished the redemptive plan of God. Are you with me? Here's one thing, sees another. That's common here. Both things teach us, not just one or the other. Okay, so here's what happened. John's hearing this thing. And so here's what it says, verse 4. And I heard the numbers of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Natali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin. I figured I'd read it, because if my name was in there, I'd want somebody to read it. So we may read this, and what we might think we see is the 12 tribes of Israel. There's not a single place in all of the Old Testament that the 12 tribes of Israel is written like this. First of all, they never start with Judah. Judah wasn't the oldest, right? Judah's probably listed here because that's the line of the tribe of Judah. It's probably, in, probably that reason. We don't, we don't know, right? But there's a whole bunch of problems with the way this is written. And so theologians and, and scholars have asked themselves this question. Does this mean national Israel, like people that are born ethnically Jewish, or is this spiritual Israel, in other words, the fulfillment of and Israel, by the way, the name Israel means governed by God, simply governed by God. So is it somebody who is nationally governed by God, or is it people who are actually spiritually governed by God? That's the question. Is it national, national Israel, or is it spiritual Israel, meaning the church, the fulfillment of Israel? Now, let's give you a few textual things for those of you that are into it. No other listing like this appears anywhere in Scripture. The tribe of Judah is never listed first. Dan and Ephraim are omitted completely. No tribe of Dan, no tribe of Ephraim. And you would say, okay, well, maybe those two tribes go south. Well, right now in Israel, no one knows which tribe they're from. Like that, they've lost this sense of genealogy. So who knows who's from whom, right? 
Now, of course, God does. So, of course, maybe one group of people went off the rails, but that actually wouldn't work here because there's never been a tribe of Joseph ever. See, Joseph is the father of Ephraim and Manasseh. And in order to give Joseph a double blessing when they're in Egypt and Joseph has saved the family after the family tried to kill him and then sent him off into slavery to give him a double blessing, his father blesses his two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So in Joseph, you would bless Ephraim and Manasseh anyways. There's never been a tribe of Joseph. There's been two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now you're like, okay, well, maybe just the line of one side and not the other, but that doesn't work either because Manasseh's listed. So if Joseph's a tribe, Manasseh's implied. If Joseph's a tribe, then Ephraim's probably implied. And I I really, again, don't care, except when we think that there is this special cutout, this special exclusion for Israel, it messes with the rest of our theology, right? It also messes with some of the things that we read in Scripture. I'd say a lot of the things we read in Scripture. Let me give you two. Matthew 3 right here, Jesus is pretty clear about national Israel. Jesus says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, he's speaking to religious leaders, Jewish leaders, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So it would be really hard to take from this, not only is Jesus undermining a high view of Israel, but he's also saying there's really no fruitfulness in Israel right now and that the axe is laid at the tree to cut down what doesn't bear fruit. And Judaism is not bearing fruit, right? In fact, they're the very ones that reject Jesus. And Jesus is the whole point of the message anyway, so whoever comes to faith comes to faith in Jesus, right? You don't get to win because you were born here or because you go to a Christian school or go to a Christian church. Like, you have to be in Christ, And so there's that. And then Paul is pretty clear about spiritual Israel being the meaning of the New Testament. He says this in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, take that sentence for just a minute. Not all who were born Jewish belong to, has to be spiritual Israel, the church, right? Not all who are Jewish are a part of the church, right? But the church is the greater, it's the fulfillment of Israel. So he goes on, he says, And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. In other words, Abraham has many children by faith. And that's what we also learn in Hebrews 11, right? This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so genealogy was a promise to bring us Jesus. Israel received all its covenant promises when it entered into the land with the exception of Jesus. And then many years later, roughly 1,500 years later, the birth of Christ fulfills the promises made to Israel. Some will say, oh, there's this left. So for us, for me, it's all fulfilled in Christ. And that Israel is no longer a separate kind of cutout for faith. But rather, everybody who comes to faith must come to faith in Christ. And that the New Testament launches with kind of the end of national Israel and the birth of the church, and the church being the fulfillment of what Israel was always supposed to be, which was to be a light to all nations. 
We know they weren't. And I, I would just say this, and that ought to convict us as well. You with me? All the things Israel wasn't, we often struggle to be. So not only does God not need Israel because his word is fulfilled here, God doesn't need you and I either. He could do it through anybody. All right. Verse 9. So the 144,000, for me, it's the true church. You can go anywhere you want to with it. Those are my reasons. Verse 9 says, after this, I looked and behold, notice what happened. John heard 144,000. What happened now? John looked, and behold, he saw. Now, here's what John sees when he looks at this 144,000. Here's what he sees. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Listen, from every nation, from all tribes, and from all peoples and languages. Right? He heard 144,000 sealed a very odd version of the tribes of Israel. And then he looked and saw a great multitude that no one can count from all nations. He is looking at the group that he heard about, and he sees something very different than we heard. So he heard the number of the sealed is 144,000. That's really a symbolic number. Clearly, there's, been more, there's more than 144,000 Jews that have come to faith, for that matter. And there's clearly more than 144,000 Christians. Right? We are the largest faith or religion on the planet, there's clearly more than that. So it has to be a symbolic number, no matter how you slice it. So it's this number of all those who are sealed, and then John looks and sees all those who are sealed, and instead of seeing 144,000 people lined up in 12 sections, he sees a great number, a multitude that no one can count, and they're not just Jewish, they're from all nations, from all tribes, and from all languages. The New Testament Israel passages don't continue those promises. What they do is they call us to be what Israel was always intended to be. Those who keep the promises of God and tell others. Those who become a witness to the rest of the world. And so we are called to fulfill that commission. In John 10 it says this. This is Jesus speaking. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So there's Jesus giving his life, right, as a sheep, but also being shepherd. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about those outside Judaism. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Now, everybody agrees with that, that that is talking about there are Jewish Christians and that there are non-Jewish Christians. And he's saying... I have other sheep that are not Jewish. Like, everybody agrees up until this point. Then I would say this. Listen to what Jesus says. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Not two. Not the church. And then this separate group of Israel. But one flock, one shepherd. That Jesus is Christ and Lord and shepherd over all who are in him. Are you with me? So if you're in the gospel, you find yourself in Christ. Right? One flock, one shepherd. Now, again, this ought to give us reason to not just look at how Israel failed, but then discern and or judge ourselves. And so let me just give you the words that Jesus spoke to Sardis earlier in the book. I'm going to read these to you. Sorry, this is to Ephesus. 
Revelation 2, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. There, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. Now, just for just 30 seconds, Paul goes into Ephesus and spends three years in Ephesus, Acts 18, 19, 20, right? Legitimately sees a massive city, kind of like Long Beach, right? Sees this massive metropolitan area come to faith so much so that he causes a riot. Because in Ephesus, all the, all the goldsmiths and the blacksmiths and all that that made idols for Artemis or Diana, right? For a goddess that they worshipped, are going out of business because Christianity has taken root. That is so cool. I someday want somebody to be angry because they lost business because of Jesus. That I want. That's a, like squad goal, right? I, like, I, I want to see that happen. <laughs> Ephesus, that gets the book, Ephesians, right? Ephesus, that gets letters from Paul to Timothy while he's pastoring Ephesus, First and Second Timothy. Ephesus, one of the seven churches Jesus writes to in the book of Revelation. Look how far they have fallen. They go from this amazing place that causes a riot because the gospel's taken root and people are no longer worshiping false idols to a place where they get a letter, an amazing letter. They get an amazing leader that Paul is personally discipling to a place where Jesus says, be careful, you're about to lose your church. I'm going to pull my lampstand from you, meaning the church. See, the American church needs to hear this. We have had a very blessed history of faith. Highs and lows, sins for sure, problems for sure, but a lot of blessing in that as well. The second great awakening happened here. Shoot, if you're from Southern California, movements started here. Right? The, all, the Pasadena Street movement. Calvary Chapel, the movie's out right now. The, the whole Jesus People movement. Calvary Chapel, the vineyard. All, that, all those movements started here. We've been very blessed. God will still take our lampstand. Jesus will still take our lampstand if we don't live that way. So here's a note for you. This is a warning for the American church. If God does not need Israel to keep his promises to the world, he doesn't need the American church either. We must be diligent to stay repentant and not lose our lampstand like the warning to Ephesus. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. Now, he wants you to be a part. He wants us to be a part. But when we will not live out the gospel that we're called to, live in repentance, bond together as a family of families, when we will not prioritize that because we're going to prioritize all the things we want, and we will not teach our children that this is the priority, not that, when all that is true, I imagine Jesus says, you've lost your first love. The love you had for me when you came to faith, you've lost that. Sometimes we come to faith on fire for Jesus, and then we get into a church that sucks the life out of us. And we forget our mission. And then we forget it's our job to take that message, no matter what life looks like, to take that message out into the world that is lost and dying and in need of a Savior. He doesn't need us, but He, sure desire, he surely desires us to be a part. So a warning to the American church is that Israel failed. And the American church is all but failed now. That we 
here, locally, within our own hearts and together, need to repent and turn up a bit. We need to raise up to the calling that Jesus has given us. Verse 9, we'll read that again. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from every nation, from all tribes, from peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We're going to get an even clearer picture of who these people are in just a minute. But the multitude are those who are saved by Jesus. And listen to what it says about them. Right? That the multitude are clothed in white robes, referencing again the conquering of the trials and tribulations on earth. Every week we've seen that. That there's a call to the church to conquer, to overcome, to endure the tribulation on earth for a purpose, that we remain the witness of Jesus on earth. And so it says in Revelation 3, to the one who conquers, be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. That's what Jesus says. When you overcome here, you enter in white garments, and those white garments represent righteousness. Right? But it's not our own righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. And then we overcome this world. It shows Christ in us. And so all of these who are clothed in white now, this great multitude, worship God and the Lamb. Verse 11, it says, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, all those heavenly beings you should healthily have good notes on, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. You should hear this and go like, okay, we've seen this. Like, this is repeated, right? There's not only this cycle of kind of what's going on in the upper story and what's taking place in the lower story. We're seeing different facets of it. We're seeing those who are called to overcome and conquer. We're seeing that they did overcome and conquer. And though they lost their lives on earth, like we saw last week, the prayers of the martyrs rising up to God. That though they've been beaten, they've been killed, they've been arrested, they've been pressed on all sizes, that, that they've achieved that white robe. And, and again, not in their own strength. That in Christ, they have survived, they, they have endured, that they have conquered, that they've overcome. And now, they stand in worship before God and before Christ. Verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Again, they worship. They continue in worship. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? Now again, I told you they would get to kind of a, a, another look at it. So we've seen this now portrayed as 144,000. We've seen this portrayed as a great multitude from all nations, all languages, all tribes, all this, all that. Now we get the question, John, who is this? Who is it you're seeing that is worshiping God? Here's the answer, verse 4. Verse 14, excuse me. I said to him, John speaking, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones that are coming out of earth, life on earth. They're being persecuted. Now, again, we read this today, 2023, Western American context for the church, right? This wasn't written to us. 
This was written to seven churches in Asia Minor 1,900 years ago who were being persecuted for their faith, who were being handed over and killed. They'd already gone, they've already undergone one Caesar who used to impale Christians and light them on fire so that he'd have light in his gardens. They've lived through that. Right? And now they're under the persecution of another who is on a rampage to kill all Christians. Right? And we've got to understand, not only that, but our Savior died on a cross and began the whole thing. And John, the author, all his friends, all who were discipled by Jesus, even Paul who came later, have all given their lives in violent ways for their faith. Paul was beheaded. John's been boiled in oil, has been arrested and beaten countless times, and is now exiled on an island writing this where Jesus speaks to him, all because of his faith. So again, he's not going to look at you and say, listen, when it gets really tough, then I'll come get you. He says this, it's going to be really tough. It's going to be tough. You're going to maybe give your life for your faith. But it's okay, I've overcome this world. This world will seek to kill you but I've overcome this world. Satan seeks to destroy you, but I've overcome Satan. They want to kill you, but I've overcome death. See, that's the gospel message. That we came and we entered into a world that God had created for us, and we rejected God. Yeah, it happened a long time before us, but then we joined the story and we do the same thing. We want to go our own way, not God's way. We choose our things, not God's things. That's why there's a call for the American church to repent. Because if we were doing the right things, we wouldn't have to repent. But even in faith, even knowing the cost of our faith, that, that Jesus gave his life on a cross, suffered on one of the most violent deaths ever known to man, that he did that as a substitute for you, for me. That he laid in a grave to cover our sins, he rose from the dead to give us new life, and then called us to fulfill that new life. He ascended to heaven to give us his spirit that we could live the life he calls us to. That he's done all this for us. And he says, listen, while you're here, temporarily here, it's going to be hard and you could even die for your faith. That's okay. I've overcome this. And he calls us to live for him. Again, Revelation 3, I quoted it a second ago. We'll put it on the screen. Jesus speaking to the church in Sardis, he says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, in other words, people who are living in repentance, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So they're in white, like the great multitude. He says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Churches, plural, you're called to overcome. Yes, churches then. Yes, churches now. The call is to overcome this world. Either, maybe it's overcome the persecution that threatens our life. Maybe it's overcome the restrictions placed on Christians in other parts of the world that limits them from working and causes them to starve. Maybe it's just overcome the complacency in the American church. Whatever it is, our call is to overcome. That the gospel calls us to overcome. So here's the question, verse 14. I said to him, sir, you know it. Who are these clothes in white? You know, you tell me, is what John's saying. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the ones coming out of life on earth as the church. 
coming out of the suffering and struggle on earth in the tribulation. Jesus told them, you will have tribulation. Tribulation began with Jesus and ends when he returns. He says, you'll endure this, one form or another. Overcome. So how do we take this and want to just take a quick snapshot while we're in that moment and say, well, what do we do? How can we take what we're hearing? Because most of us will not give our life for our faith, meaning most of us will never be confronted with death because we are followers of Jesus. Our struggles will be different, but it's not that. And so how do we hear that? How can we be grateful for that even? That we live in a country that we can own a building, put a sign outside, live stream our services, and be free, even if the world or the nation or the community or culture that we live in really opposes Christianity, we still have the freedom to do this. So what do we do with that? Let me give you three things. One thing we must overcome on earth. So like Sardis, we can repent of sin daily. Those who have not stained their garments, right? We can repent of sin daily. We understand ourselves as people who are in constant need of repentance, whose only hope is the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin. How do we conquer? We overcome sin daily. That we remind ourselves we've never arrived. We've never made it. That the closer we get to Jesus, the more we'll know about our flaws and our brokenness. But that's okay because we're called to conquer, overcome. And it's not even in our own strength that we overcome. It's the spirit within us that causes us to overcome. Alex stole my favorite verse today. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But, right? That I'll take from you a heart of stone. I'll put in you a heart of flesh, a heart that can beat for God. And, and my spirit I'll please with you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commands. Right? That I, God will do the heavy lifting. It's his job, not our job. Our job is to live in it. To repent. Second thing, one thing we share with heaven today. Like the redeemed in heaven, we join in worshiping the eternal God and the Lamb who was slain but lives forever. Our worship is a response to who God is and our thankfulness to Jesus for our salvation. Prioritize worship, corporate worship. God calls us to that. Right When Alex begins, I know half of you aren't in here yet, but when Alex begins... Yes, that was a, that was a passive-aggressive shot at all the people that are late, just for the record. Okay, so he, call, he, he reads a verse that, that God calls us to worship. And we stand and we lift our voices like we see the redeemed doing, like we will again do, right? We get to join right now. Here's my ask on this. Quit thinking church starts at 10 and you can be here at 10.15. Start thinking church starts at 10 you should be here at 9.45. That you can be here. That you can worship together. With your coffee, with your donut, okay, 9.30. Whatever it takes you, right? So that you're not coming in and missing out on fulfilling what God is calling us to, to do together. That we can join in what's going on. Upper story, lower story. Same time, same thing. How powerful is that? That we can join in what goes going on in heaven. Final thing. One thing we can't do once we're in heaven. Like the final words of Jesus in Matthew instruct us to do. We get to join in the church's mission to reach and disciple the lost. We no longer are able to show the gospel again when we reach eternity. Go therefore 
today. An opportunity lost when we're removed from this story. No evangelizing in heaven. But you have the opportunity today to take and reach those whom you love with the gospel. Read these verses, 15, starting in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is that space in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. Right? Because it doesn't, there is no temple in eternity. There's this reminder that right now in this season where the upper story is redeeming what's going on in the lower story. And the lower story are the redeemed being a light and a witness for Jesus and lifting their voices in worship and not mattering. It doesn't matter what's going on for them. Of course, I mean, it matters, but irregardless of all that, that they stand and worship and join in the upper story. And so let us live in repentance. Let us worship well. We have a moment right now. We have to respond and worship right after communion. And let us take and be a light and share our faith with others. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. We are incredibly grateful for you. We thank you for all that you give us. For all that you have overcome on our behalf. That is not by anything that we can do. Because everything we do messes it up. That it is by your work alone that we are or can be the redeemed. That we can be truly in you. And so Jesus, we are grateful for you. We love you. We thank you that you've provided a way and that you give us strength in the meantime. These these moments of graces, your word is a grace, a strengthening to us, communion is a means of grace that strengthens our spirit. That you have given us this so that we could be your church, we could go out into the world, that we could overcome the world we live in by repenting daily of sin, by joining the worship of you and being the witness to others, that we can do that like your saints in heaven. That here, us, we, your saints on earth, can fulfill the mission you have given us so that you don't remove your lampstand from our nation, from our city, from our church, Lord. And so strengthen us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.